Good morning or afternoon to everyone that's listening here. Um, my name is Adnan Shafin. I'm going to be your host as well today. Uh, today we're going to be talking about colorism and obviously where it comes from. Um, and we're going to be checking uh, obviously the differences in colorism uh, in Asia, for example, comparing those to the African continent as well as those in the uh, Caribbean as well. And we have a very special guest for you today. As usual, would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, everyone. My name is Jamil Ninsu. I am of Jamaican background. I'm a Dogla, so I have African and Indian ancestry. I am currently attending Broward College, where I'm studying African American studies. I've also served on the Muslim Student Association board, as well as the Black Student Association. I was the president for two years of the Black Student Association. I now serve as the director. And that's just a little bit about me. Thank you so much for that, Jamil. Obviously, very excited to have you here today. Um, we'll get right into it. And uh, what I'll probably just ask first is, have you experienced colorism or what exactly is uh, the colorism like there in the Caribbean and specifically in Jamaica where you live? So when it comes to colorism, it, it comes in various fashions, right? Because in, the, in Jamaica specifically, we have different words for certain things. So um, black doesn't necessarily just refer to someone who's of African descent. It just means that it's a darker person. So we have black Indians and things like that. Um, so also what I can say is that, so we have a term in the group in Jamaica called browning, right? And so browning refers to someone who's of a lighter, like a light skinned person. Um, we have terms like red Igbo, which is if you're a light, very, very light complected, but you have very strong African features, you're likely to be called a red evil. And so I've, I've seen these terms used. I have a very dark skinned cousin and we call him black fowl, which means, you know, like black bird, black chicken. And it, 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 it varies from community to community, right? So I live in the country where the, the trends of society aren't such of a big thing. So nobody's really running to bleach themselves. But in like the capital and other major cities, people are bleaching themselves to fit into this browning, you know, browning mentality, browning way of life. And, and even when you look at the, the origins of that word browning, browning was originally someone who had an Irish parent and a black parent. So, you know, a mixed race person. But so colorism, it varies, you know, during the slavery, the plantation times, um, the mixed race children tended to be light skinned and they were given better off positions. They were more likely to get the education. Um, so there is sort of a stigma that if you're lighter skin, you know, if you're brown, they can't let you down type of mentality where, you know, I know a lot of darker skinned men look after, look for a lighter skinned wife. It, it, it varies. And then amongst the races as well, because you have, you know, the darker skinned Indians versus the lighter skinned Indians, you have, um, some of the darker skinned Chinese versus the lighter skinned Chinese. So it, it, it really is a problem throughout all of Jamaica and other Caribbean countries as a whole. Um, so that, yeah, I can, I can, I'll leave it as there. And then if you have any other questions, I can clarify. Yeah, no, I find it very, very particular the way um, colorism has actually made a feature in so many different societies that were like uh, affected by slavery and colonialism. I think obviously the main thing, if we, we go back to the roots of all of this, um, it's based on the ideal of white supremacy. Obviously 
the lighter or the closer that you get to being a white person, a white passing, the more privileges that you actually gain. And I was doing a bit of uh, reading on this and it's actually quite uh, stark, like the, the, the similarities are actually quite close in terms of like, if you look at the Philippines, for example, where they were also colonized by the Spanish. And I know that the Spanish also had a hand in the Caribbean as well, uh, specifically places like Cuba um, and also Florida as well. Uh, if you actually look at how similar the systems were, for example, in the Philippines, lighter skinned people were known to actually get um, jobs that were more like in the house and all that stuff. But if you're darker skinned, you get the, the toughest jobs of, um, for example, uh, you know, going out into the field and, you know, just some people even worked to death in like many instances and we've seen all of this different stuff. Um, so yeah, thank you very much for being able to allude to that. And my question would be like, um, how, how, in, how did they institutionalize this? I know like most people just think, you know, this system didn't come out of nowhere. It was very deliberate. Were there any laws that uh, indicated this? Were there any uh, specific records of how to keep slaves? Or like, was it just something that was, became culture like over time? Right. So when you say how did these the system comes into place right a lot of people look towards willie lynch and the letter he wrote um because willie lynch was a jamaican plantation owner so or plant plantation owner slave owner so he he did play a very large part in the whole separation of the colors and the various different ways you can differentiate between the people and so that's one aspect of looking at it and then historically speaking um, certain tribes that were brought in as slaves tended to be darker or lighter. That also played into a part because if you can set the tribes against each other, then you know you don't really have to worry about those colors because they'll separate themselves as well. Um, but also the schooling system of Jamaica, because a lot of the better schools were schools that were primarily for white or white passing students. So they're they're tends to be this whole, that's where the concept of, you know, the more lighter skinned kids tend to be more educated because they were able to attend certain schools. And most of the schools in Jamaica, you have to take tests to attend, but they're also, there's a lot of logistics that go into making sure you can weed out the darker skins and send them to one place, the lighter skins and send them to another place. I see it in my own family where certain lighter skin members tended to go to school in the capital or closer to the capital, while darker skin members of my family remained in schools that were in St. Mary. So, you know, it, it, you can look at it from a very, a very systematic sense of the edge. It starts at the education level. And then, you know, obviously better schools, schools might teach a different history, schools might have better equipment and all these type of things. Then people tend not to want to associate with this group because of the stigma and the stereotypes or the and the ideologies that have been put into place already yeah i think that's a very it's a very valid um uh addition to like this whole layer of colorism and how it actually just started i think yeah obviously colorism in my opinion is taught because um when i was doing my reading on slavery for example um when the black africans first encountered white people they just thought of them as other people and um, they were not really race conscious, for example. So it just proves that race consciousness and this idea of race and rank 
have been deliberately implanted into the educational system. And obviously I get what you're saying. And like, let's even look at, let's extrapolate from what you've just said and look at the possible implications of colorism. So obviously let's say a dark skinned uh, child ends up going to a school that's obviously deprived of um, all the equipment. As we've said, they've taught a different history and you get a light skinned person who is actually favored in some instances and taken to a school that arguably has better equipment. And, you know, that'll give them greater access to opportunities, greater access to, to wealth, although they might still be discriminated against. Dark-skinned people have theoretically actually have had it the worst. How does this manifest in, in today's world, for example? Do you see more light-skinned people obtaining uh, other positions of power in Jamaica or the Caribbean? Or do people just generally favor being associated with light-skinned people? What's the general uh, attitude and how does it affect the daily life in the Caribbean today? So depending on where in, so speaking from Jamaica first and then I'll move on to like other Caribbean islands. When you look at Jamaica, you have certain places, the, the racial makeup of Jamaica varies depending on where you go. Um, you have places like Trelawney that have a very strong African presence. You have places like Hanover that have a very strong African presence. So colorism hasn't really hit them so strongly because of the connection with African roots. Places like Kingston, which is the capital, which has a lot of the schools and the governmental buildings and all these type of things, is a more melting pot. You have the Chinese, the Arabs, the Jews, the whites, the blacks, the Indians, and then their mixed race offspring who are also walking around. So it's a very mixed race place, but you still see that those who are lighter tend to get a better, get to get a, tend to get a better privilege in certain aspects, you know, um, it just, it, it, it really does vary. And then speaking for other places in the Caribbean, I can tell you that in the, La the Spanish speaking Caribbean, there's definitely a higher ranking of, of colorism, um, just due to, the whole Spanish casta system, right? So back when Spain was ruling the Caribbean, they had a whole casta system that said, black and black makes black. So if a black man and a black woman have a child, that child is racially black. But if a black man and a white woman have a child, that child is a mulatto. And then if a mulatto and a white person have a child, it's something else. And it's, a, it's possible to breed out the white or breed out the black or breed out the native, however you want to go about it. So you have all these different categories. So I, I realized that, here, living in South Florida, a lot of white Hispanics, right, that being that their ethnicity is that of Hispanic, but they're racially white, will say that they're not white because of their ideas that looking back at this caste system, they would be considered something else. And so you do see the colorism that exists within there. Um, it really, and it, it shows up a lot in preference when people say that they want a brown skin a boyfriend or a brown skin girlfriend. You see it a lot there. You see it a lot in certain remarks. There's no real derogatory term to define someone who's light-skinned, but you have a whole book for people who are dark-skinned. Um, it, it, it really does show itself in this modern day. And we're in 2020, so this might have been back maybe four years ago. My mother does home health care. She she's a CNA, so she takes care of elderly people. And she had an elderly Jamaican person that she was taking care of. And this person was a lighter skinned person. Um, I believe she was mixed race, uh, black and Chinese, but more favoring in the face of Chinese and a very lighter skinned person. And her husband and so was a white person. So her children were white passing. And she made it very clear 
that she looked down on darker skinned Jamaicans and darker skinned people as a whole. I don't know if you're familiar with the comedian, um, what's her name, Leslie? She's, she was a, a comedian from Saturday Night Live. Her name was Leslie Jordan or Leslie, something like that. She's a very dark skinned, tall black woman. And I remember she was in a commercial and I was sitting with my mother's um, you know, patient and we were watching the TV. And when, when Leslie came onto the commercial, the lady looked at me, she said, how, how could they put this ugly black woman? And, and when she said black, I, was, I, I felt it. And I was like, mom, aren't you half black? Like, where is, that, where is this animosity coming from? <laughs> and so it, it's, it's surprising that you see that it's, it's still alive and well, because that, that woman was probably in her 80s, you know, so she's probably late 80s, early 90s now. Her children were raised that way. Her grandchildren are raised that way. So some families are still carrying on this belief that the black is beneath them. In Brazil, there's a famous painting from Brazil with a African slave woman who's raising her hands to God and thanking God because she has a mixed race child and her mixed race child is holding a white baby and next to her, so her it's her daughter, her mixed race daughter is holding a white baby and next to the mixed race daughter is a white man. So she's essentially thanking God that the blackness has left her family. And so the, these are the things that we deal with in, in, in the Caribbean culture. And the, the colorism that exists, you know, Douglas, you know, those of us who are Dogla, the, Af the more African favoring Douglas get it. We hear that colorism thing because it's like, oh, you don't have the pretty hair or you don't have the pretty brown skin or all of that. So it, it manifests in so many different ways throughout the Caribbean that we could sit here all day talking about the various. I'd say the one place you don't see colorism as, and I don't even want to say that you don't see it as heavily, but a place where you'd be less likely to see it is Haiti. Because, you know, Haiti got its independence in 1804. They got rid of the French. So they had a population of, of Black and mulatto. And over time, I guess, you know, you could say the majority of Haiti's population is Black. So there, there's less anti-Blackness, anti-colorism there. Domin the Dominican Republic, on the other hand, has it very heavily. And, and they're on the same island. And they, they sh the, there's lit literally the border is a river. And it's a river that people can cross by walking. So, you know, like I said, we could be here all day talking about how it manifests and where it manifests more strongly. Yeah, no, I find it so, I find it so interesting how it was like properly institutionalized. And I think um, one thing that does actually happen, I don't, I'm not sure about uh, obviously a lot of U.S. history and segregationist history, uh, but I did hear uh, about that point where you could literally have the black leave your family. And I think that's very, it's a very powerful sentiment because there's this idea that as black people, this, this whole system of white supremacy wants to make us escape our blackness. And I've seen a deliberate attempt by some people, and I'm not trying to generalize in communities here, but some people in some communities to try and escape blackness. Um, one example that I always hear, and I've mentioned it in so many of my TikTok videos, is in the Somali community, people will, for example, say Somalis are not black, they're Arab, or they'll show different bone structures. And then for me, I always just fall to this idea that race is, some, race is something that's definitely socially constructed, right? 
if we're talking about bone structure and all this different stuff, even you can see when you look at me and you look at you, black people are not the same like everywhere. Obviously, there's different ways of um, black people come in different ways and shapes and forms, right? Uh, and someone I remember on Twitter tried to use that argument that um, because Somalis have a different bone structure, they don't count as black. And sure, maybe like, you know, um, uh, for example, I know Medea studied uh, a lot of like, you know, skull structure and all that stuff and how it fits into scientific race. But in terms of socially constructed race and where privileges are dished out based on race, I feel like obviously Somali people will classify as black. Uh, there's so many different people of different kinds that will receive different privileges because um, obviously they're dark-skinned or light-skinned. So I think that there's obviously this idea that uh, people want to escape their blackness. And one other part that I'm starting to see come through is there's a lot of anti-dark-skinned sentiment within the black community. Um, and obviously you've just mentioned it yourself, like people want to marry uh, a light-skinned light girl or something like that. Or some people will literally just call dark-skinned girls uh, ghetto in quotes, whatever that means, uh, or they'll just associate them with certain uh, ideals. What do you think causes that, especially black boys who may as well have black mothers coming out and saying, <laughs> you know, <laughs> black women are not beautiful at all? So I can definitely tell you what that stems from, right? That stems from what we are fed growing up. So I grew up uh, for a good portion of my youth in America, and I've, I saw it. Um, I, I even could have said maybe if something hadn't changed, I would have been one of those black boys that was saying those things, right? And so when you look at it, Disney princesses, like let, let's start at like a very child, childish level. Right, Disney princesses. I was having this conversation with my mother the other day that you can count the princesses of color on one hand. Um, you can count the black princess on one hand. And I love Princess and the Frog. I considered it one of my favorite Disney movies. Tiana was one of my fa is my favorite Disney princess. And it wasn't until my senior year of high school someone said that they didn't like Princess and the Frog. And I said, "You're black. You're a woman. Why wouldn't you like it?" And she said, "Why is it the first time we get a black princess?" She's a frog for like 95% of the movie. And that stuck with me. And it's stuck with me ever since then. So when you look at who you're promoting as Disney, as Disney princesses, right? Because every little girl wants to be a Disney princess. But you, for a long time, we didn't have that representation, right? A lot of TV shows have these black characters, but they're not black characters. Like I say that you have characters who are black and you have black characters. And characters who are black are characters who live their everyday life and their skin color, they're, you know, they're animated characters, but their skin color does nothing to the story or does nothing to add any nuances to their story. So my favorite character right now is Craig of the Creek. My favorite show is Craig of the Creek. And it's a show that's very similar to Kids Next Door mixed with Ed, Ed and Eddie. It's about a black boy named Craig. His friends and him hang out at the creek. And it's like in their backyard and they do all these different types of adventures. But the representation Craig brought that I've seen as a black man looking, I wish I had that growing up. Craig's dad wears a maroon sweatshirt with a tiger on it. Those who don't really pick up on little cues like that don't realize that maroon is the color of Morehouse, which is a historically black college in the United States that Martin Luther King Jr. went to. The tiger is their mascot. His mom wears a blue sweatshirt that says HU. Howard University, which, if I'm not mistaken, was the first 
historically black college in the United States, or if not the first, one of the first, and it's one of the better known ones as well. And there's just little things that happen in that show. Craig doesn't want to get a haircut because his barber leaves and he says he can't just switch up barbers. As a black man, I identify with that, the whole connection with you know a barber. And there's so many other little things. So it's that lack of representation that you have, you know, that makes you tend to have a, a tend uh, anti-dark skin or whatever the case might be. In high school, we had Spirit Week. We did um, Rock Stars versus Barbie. You know, Barbie's male counterpart is Ken. I went to school dressed up as Ken, and a white student told, well, not even a white Hispanic student told me that I couldn't be Ken because I'm black. And you know, it's things like that. And so the media definitely has a lot to do with it because if you're not showcasing a particular group and highlighting the beauty of that group, you tend to get negative reactions. We have these stereotypes in America, right? Right now, I think a lot of people, I don't think a lot of people are, but some people might be losing their minds over Aunt Jemima because we're losing Aunt Jemima, the pancake, you know, mascot. And the thing is, I don't think a lot of people realize that Aunt Jemima's design now was not the same design it was when I was a child. When I was a child, she looked like a very much like a slave woman. You know, they, they, they slimmed her face. They gave her some nice little curls. They gave her some earrings to try to make her look modern. But there's still, there's still arguments over that, right? So you have the Aunt Jemima, which feeds into the mammy stereotype. And the mammy was essentially this, was a justification that Black people were happy to be slaves. You had a dark-skinned woman who always had her hair covered, who kind of had her femininity stripped away from her and was just happy to serve white people. So that's one stereotype. You have the Jezebel, which is the hyper, over, hyper and over-sexualized black woman, right? That was like another justification that was like, if black women weren't bred, they would die. So it was like a slave master doing God's will and helping these women by breeding them, which, you know, that was a whole thing in and of itself. You have the, the Sapphire, which is the angry black woman stereotype. And these are, these are stereotypes that are pushed and constantly pushed, whether, whether we're conscious of it or not, these, these stereotypes are constantly pushed. It's why when you watch shows like um, Family Reunion, you have the grandmother, uh, Family Reunions on Netflix, you have this black grandmother who's a dark-skinned, heavy-set grandmother. Not every grandmother is a dark-skinned, heavy-set grandmother. And then, so this anti-blackness stems from, I'd say, even some celebrities you know, there's a there's a famous rapper down here in South Florida named Kodak Black, who was well known when he made the remarks that dark skinned women are ghetto and, and gutter and that he would prefer a light skinned woman because a light skinned woman, light skinned women are feminine and they're gentle and they need to be caressed and, and taken care of while black darker skinned women are are tough and can take care of themselves. And I feel as though it's a it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because if you constantly bash dark-skinned women and caress lighter-skinned women, it, it would cause lighter-skinned women to feel, the, you know, to kind of soften themselves up because they know they'll be caressed. And darker-skinned women will toughen themselves up because they know they have to toughen themselves up. And so it, it's weird because it's like a, it's an endless cycle that at some point has to be broken. And I like to think our generation is a generation that will be breaking it, but it, it, it it's going to take a it's going to take a lot of work yeah no thank you thank you for that like insight i think 
definitely you've come off a very, very interesting point about cartoons and representation in the media. Uh, I've, I've had the privilege of doing a couple of episodes on racist cartoons, and I think I'm actually going to bring it back, provided TikTok stops taking my stuff down. But uh, what I will say is, mm, I believe on one of my videos, the one that went like pretty much viral. I think 630,000 people saw it. So that's a very good sample size if I'm doing a bit of an experiment. I clearly showcased, um, I think it was Jungle Jitters, which is one of the oldest cartoons from Disney. Extremely racist. And I was shocked to see, and I still see the comments till this day, and I posted it a month ago, of people not seeing that it's racist. And I think that's where subconscious racism and colorism actually starts to creep into the minds of kids. A lot of people were asking, oh, what's so racist about it? Those are monkeys. But people didn't realize that that cartoon was actually showcasing black people and portraying them as monkeys in the African, um, you know, uh, like, you know, around African huts and all that stuff. And I think one main thing that I've managed to take away from these cartoons is every single one of them that I watch has portrayed people as dark skins, right? So it's, it's not, it's never, you'll never find someone, there's no such thing as light skin face, there's black face. And black face is where you literally get the darkest color and you essentially make your lips nice and red and all that different stuff, make them really fat. And then, um, you know, you just uh, put the black paint all over your face. And for me, I think that's just a quick way to demonize dark skinned people. And like, even like when you, when you talk about Barbie dolls, I don't think we took so long for them to get, um, you know, uh, dark-skinned girls, you know, there. And even when you check, I think there's a couple of surveys. There's one, this one woman, I can't remember her name, uh, but she, she's well-known for giving a talk about subconscious racism and having to unlearn racism. She did an experiment in, in a classroom where they had uh, dark-skinned dolls and they had light-skinned dolls. Even the dark-skinned girls were choosing the light-skinned dolls or the white doll over the black doll. And that, for me, speaks to subconscious racism. Or, or even, sorry, colorism. Uh, and I think, obviously, these are, these are things that you find in TV shows. And people take, people take this for granted. And the thing I don't understand, especially about a lot of people um, in society today, is they say, what's so deep about it? It's a cartoon. But people don't realize. Like, for example, when someone like Hitler came to power, one of the first places that they actually targeted was where? It was literally literature. It was art. It was things like movies. It was things like music. And the moment that you literally, when people think they're relaxing, they're actually receiving propaganda. And if you see this propaganda actually being put in place, what you actually do see is um, that obviously there's a bias towards light-skinned people. And obviously, uh, I'm probably going to ask you this uh, as like the third, uh, like as a, like a halfway point, uh, because obviously uh, you do have some Indian heritage. Um, can you speak a bit about how the caste system, um, first of all, how it came into being, if you do know about that history, and also how it affects um, Jamaicans with some form of Indian descent, and if that also exacerbates the, the colorism that is taking place in the world today? All right. So I, I want to touch on the, when you were referring to the, the cartoons, just for a quick second, right? And just to you were saying you were mentioning how they show the dark-skinned people as monkeys right and i hate to say my favorite but my favorite of those 
which are which are called the censored 11 over here because there's 11 of them that were there they aren't shown it's very hard to find them and there's one called scrub me mama with a boogie beat and i consider it the musical videos of the music music video of racism because it's it was a song that was written and then put to that cartoon and so all these dark-skinned people look like monkeys and the same similar to the video you showed there's one light-skinned woman who very much looks like a person and so that I just wanted to, you know, put that out there for you and the viewers, you know, to look at because that one's on YouTube. You can easily find that one. Um, now, referring to the caste system. Right. So from my understanding of the caste system was that it's it's essentially a hierarchy system based on the color. Of, I don't I don't I'm not entirely sure if it's 100 percent the color of your skin, but I know your skin color does play a factor into it and does play a factor into the larger coloristic colorism and coloristic nature of Indians as a whole. Now, when you speak of the caste system in its relation to Indo-Caribbean people, it's actually interesting to say that it didn't, as of right now, it's not as big of a, of a, a hot button issue or topic that we face, right? Especially those of us in Jamaica, because the Indian population was so much smaller and so much spread out, you don't see it as much. And in places like Trinidad and Guyana, you don't really see it as much. Maybe Suriname might have some casteist issues, but for the most part in Jamaica, the caste system hasn't really affected us as much because when my forefathers left India and arrived in Jamaica, there was a sense of unity, right? Because while my ancestors might've been Muslim and speaking Bhojpuri, and might have had a Hindu neighbor who spoke Bhojpuri, and they wouldn't have agreed on a religious level. When they found themselves on that ship, which was a three-month journey, where many Indians died, right? So you had a lot of people dying, and watching people die, I feel like brings people together. With this whole Black Lives Matter movement, I see a lot of African-Americans, Africans, and Afro-Caribbeans coming together, right, on a, on a basis of race and similar struggle, where they otherwise would have been separated. So my ancestors, when they came to Jamaica, there was a, a, a sort of a bond that came out to the fact that we were in this together. So Hindu, Sikh, um, Muslim, whatever the case might be, we were in this struggle together and we were going to survive this together. So maybe in the beginning, in the beginning stages, the caste system was an issue because a higher caste might not have wanted to sit next to a lower caste on the ship or share a, 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 a loji which is the housing systems that they had might not have wanted to work with or marry or, or whatever the case with. But as the generations progress, there was kind of a leaving of certain things. And, and the caste system was agreed that by many was a thing that could be left behind. So, excuse me, there isn't as much of a, the, now colorism within the Indo-Caribbean community is very much a thing, right? I've, I've seen it within my family and others where the lighter skinned ones are told not to stay outside so much. The darker skinned ones are told, you know, not to go, not to stay outside so much. Um, the darker skinned ones are told, you know, do li li very little things to try to keep the, the melanin from getting any darker. Lighter skinned ones are told not to bring home any no dark people. Um, it, it, it really, you really do see it, right? And so it, it, it's interesting because the caste system with the Indo-Caribbeans, when they did come, they came to Jamaica and the British, were, the British told them, they told the Indians to stay away from the Blacks because the Blacks are dirty, the Blacks are vile, the Blacks are this. 
And then they t the British also told the blacks stay away from the Indians because the Indians are vile, the Indians are dirty, the Indians are this. So there was a division. So you have this whole indoctrinated division as well as the Indians bringing over this caste system where lighter is better and darker is worse. So there's already like an animosity that goes on there. So any mixed race children born out of that group, Dogla literally means mixed caste. Like you don't really belong to one or the other, right? So you belong in this weird world where you're too dark for one group but too light for the other group. There's even I know like with the Hindus, they've they've been recently coming out and saying there's a whitewashing of their their gods and goddesses because when you look at older form or paintings of their gods and goddesses, they're dark. Look at them, they're much, much more lighter. Like I know one of their goddesses is called Kali. And it's funny because in Caribbean Hindustani, the word for black is Kala. So, and even now she's represented as like a lighter skinned woman. So it, it, it hasn't really, it affects us in a lesser sense because the caste system we no longer have, but the colorism still remains. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you so much for that. And I think for me, it's, a, it's just one of the main facts that actually proves that things like colorism and in fact racism can be unlearned whether it's through certain generations. And I think perhaps I can add my own different African perspective to um, the idea of, you know, obviously this, this darker skinned people and then there was like an Indian race and um, there was also um, white people who had the most privileges. I'll, I'm going to speak very briefly about South Africa because I know there's actually quite a huge, um, I'd say that's probably one of the most um, racially charged countries at the moment in terms of racial tension. And it's no reason, there's, there's, there's a very good reason as to why. Um, if you look at um, the way people were actually classified in South Africa, there was obviously there was white people and then there was coloreds. And like in South Africa, colored isn't really like offensive. It's just considered how they name the races. Um, then from the colored race, obviously you have black people. And you can see that the privileges were handed out very specifically in terms of what color you came out as. And um, obviously coloreds would most likely have um, more rights than, for example, a black person. And they would be separated even in terms of like the townships. And I'm talking very, I'm not really gonna bring up any specific examples because um, I don't have that information with me right now. But it's interesting to see that such a similar system was actually implemented here in Kenya. I recall having a conversation with my grandmother and I mean, this is this is exactly what I mean. When people tell us to forget history, you don't even realize that if I can tell, if I can talk to my grandmother about this, and she's experienced colorism and racism and has been in um, in a system of racism, this is something that's definitely notable. It affects the way I'm brought up, and it affected the way my mom was brought up as well. So it's definitely impactful to the the world today. And she gave me a very interesting story. Just um, very simple, but you can see that the implications were very, very um, far-reaching. Uh, what she told me is that when she would want to go to a public bathroom, there'd be a white bathroom, there'd be like an Indian passing bathroom, or like, you know, light-skinned bathroom, and then there'd be a, a dark-skinned bathroom. So I think one of the main things over here, it just shows you, obviously, uh, she told us about how they were maintained the black uh, or the, the dark skinned bathroom was absolutely dirty. There was almost no maintenance at all. Um, the light skinned bathroom was better than the black bathroom, but less uh, than obviously that of 
the white people. And uh, my grandmother was using that one because she was light-skinned passing or like Indian passing. And then obviously um, the white people had the best ones, like the bathrooms were cleaned, um, they would smell nice and all this different stuff. And I think obviously uh, the British, when they came, and even just colonizers and this idea of racial supremacy, it was a deliberate effort to try and stem revolution and uh, like, you know, to keep people from actually fighting. And one of the best ways to do that was divide and conquer. And you can see this even in Nigeria, the way they used to rule through um, the couple of people in India. Sometimes they used to rule through certain Maharajas, all this different stuff. Um, in Kenya, you can even just see, like, obviously the way they had that um, division. Even till today, obviously I've heard of, in Kenya, these, like, Indian-only apartments. Some people do it for religious reasons, obviously, because there's people who have, like, you know, beef, and they don't want beef to be cooked in those neighborhoods. That's totally respectable. But the question comes where some people have literally said that they want Indian-only apartments because Black people, they can't really assimilate with their culture, and it's distasteful. And, you know, that's just coming from a colorist perspective. I remember watching someone else's TikToks and they were telling us about this. It's very, very interesting that even till today in our country that people have pseudo-segregated apartments based along colorist lines. And that for me is, is even, it just goes to show how far-reaching these implications of, of colorism are. Even when you go to India, obviously, and you go to places like China, there's just subtle advertisements for, you know, people bleaching their skin. It's seen as something that, you know, okay, you know what, you want to look like this other person. But now, like, obviously now we're starting to see um, in some places it's dying down, but it's still very much a thing in places like India, where some people can even do blackface and they still think that it has no racial connotations. Um, so obviously, I guess, um, to make it a bit more personal, um, actually we'll cover two topics. Um, have any of your grandparents or any of your um, extended family, do they have any stories about colorism that they've experienced? And then also the second one, I remember we had a conversation earlier about left-hand marriages. Uh, could you just talk to us a bit about that and how it's uh, either enforced colorism or racism? Okay, so no problem. I can, so I'll start with the, my, my grandparents. So my nanny is, uh, is a is a true and proper dogla, right? So she, her mother is a East Indian woman. Her father was a African Afro Jamaican man, and her siblings, um, she has two siblings, two brothers that share the same mother and father, and then she has two brothers where they only share the same mother. And her, the the colorism that exists within that set of siblings, right? I've only really known one of her brothers because the others passed when I was so much more younger. I don't really have any memories of them. But when I hear her talk about them, you can kind of hear the the um the the the, the remnants of what colorism has done. So you when my when my nanny speaks of her I have like a video on TikTok where she talks about her parents and the way she says her father was a black man versus when she says her mother was a brown Indian. You, you hear the tonal difference in that. And it's subtle. And if you weren't really thinking anything of it, you just think she's putting an emphasis. But the, the shift in the emphasis is like a gentle brown and a very harsh black. Um, even when we talk about like hair type, right? My nanny will say that she she's the, the so in Jamaica we say wash belly. 
and wash belly means that's the last child born for that woman so you know it's like that baby is the last baby to come out so and then wash out means you know like if you have a bottle of you know soda and you put water in there to get the last of it out so my nanny will say that she's the wash belly and she's the washout she get all the washout so she'll say she got the last of the little bit of the indian genes that she could get when she was born born so her hair compared to her eldest brother isn't as wavy or loose but the thing is we, we in it's like we don't say wavy or loose we'll say she'll say my brother had pretty hair and i have this hair and 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 a lot of my family members say it they'll say they don't have pretty hair i remember i post we have like a we have a facebook group where we have like all of our family members from the indian side so we have some doglers we have some proper blacks we have some proper indians and all that case and every little mix in between and so i see where some of the relatives are fighting over who has the more indian features because that would mean they have the more lighter skin features or like certain relatives are boasting about their lightness and all these type of things so when you when you say like talk about colorism i'd also say that sometimes it also stems into racism um actually i made a, a little list of some of the things that members of my family had been called and so this is in relation to the indian uh, our indian heritage right and so coolie is a derogatory term that's used against indians in the caribbean i know in south africa and, and fiji as well in jamaica it's it's weird because it's similar to the n-word where you have some populations who use it have reclaimed the word and you have others who haven't necessarily who choose not to reclaim the word so they've been called things such as hairy leg coolie um which is you know just that a hairy legged indian you have boar nose coolie and boar nose is referencing to the fact that some of the indian women used to have nose piercing so in jamaica instead of saying pierce we'd say boar so like you know they pierce their nose um you have coolie coolie mean them don't near meat and that's referencing to the hindu indians who are vegetarians you have um coolie wear red because india hindu brides were wearing red and then you have um my I, the one that my mother always told me and it always makes me kind of smirk at that that was a thing that people just walked up and said in a schoolyard was coolie poop on kalalu and turn around and eat it and that was basically referencing to the fact that during the, um, the indentureship time when our forefathers were working as indentured laborers they worked on plantations but they also grew their side gardens there were no toilets there were no latrine systems set up so sometimes you had indians who in the middle of their work would just go off to the side and use the restroom most of them didn't really have shoes so in, in you know you, you can imagine you know you're working in a field of, of crop you stop to use the bathroom you keep on working and so that was where that statement came from and so those were the things that my family grew through you know i have my own little theory that i think my great grandmother was trying to breed out the indian to escape these things but i i've never got the chance to meet her so i'll never know what her 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 thought process was when she married you know when she had children with black men i'll never know but that's my own personal theory was she was trying to escape that sort of dogma and stigma because if you don't count the multi the multiracials then the indians are the largest minority of jamaica where blacks make up the majority and so that's to answer that question and then your second question was 
I'm, I'm going to need you to remind me real quick. Yeah, um, actually, I'll probably say something and then just kind of reiterate the question, if you don't mind. Um, yeah, and it's very interesting how we kind of had terms. Um, we, we kind of had terms for, for light-skinned people or like, you know, um, or in your case, Indian people. That's very interesting that the fact that people, like generations after slavery was over, people were still using all of these words to refer to people. And I think obviously, yeah, like it's, it's funny how powerful language can actually be and analyzing its roots can actually like let us know so much more about colorism and how it was enforced. And I think obviously when I look to my Nairobi background, right, I remember if there's one thing that we know um, about light-skinned people, for example, I've seen a couple of people do TikToks on it. Um, for some reason, we call light-skinned people pointees because it's like 0.5. It's like there's a one a white person and then there's like a dark, like a dark-skinned person. It's like they make half, so it's like 0.5. And I remember just kind of like you know going. It's like some sort of weird way of scaling people. Although those women tend to be the most fetishized. Although one interesting thing that happens here in in Kenya is that if you're light-skinned, usually if you're going to like a, a street market um, or if you're going to a Maasai market, for example, the price is usually going to hike up for you. And people usually try to just say, like, it depends how white-passing you are. But if you're more white-passing, then um, I'd say that um, you're more likely to, to have a higher price or people think that you're richer or that you came from a, a rich family. It's, it's sort of, it's interesting to see how that's kind of like used as like a sort of hateful stereotype, but it's, it's not hateful. Like it's working in the way the British wanted it to because you see white people, let's say they married a black person, they had kids. You're closer to, to like this idea of whiteness. That means you're closer to this idea of success, all of these different things. And I'm starting to read up a bit more on the, the laws that white people are using to actually justify these things. And I guess now we can uh, move on to probably I'd say the last question of the podcast uh, before we do a quick wrap up. Um, tell us a bit more about left-hand marriages because that was a very interesting way of um, further institutionalizing colorism and also it, it gave us a real idea of how ingrained race racism and colorism was in terms of gaining privileges back or losing the blackness in your family? So when you look at the United States, United States as we know it today has, was not always what it was, right? Um, various European um, powers had holdings within, the United, within what is now the United States. So when you look at the state of Louisiana, Louisiana was a French territory at one point. And so the French slave owners, this French um, plantocracy had a practice known as left-hand marriages in which as a white man I have my white wife and we were married in the church and we have our children or we don't have children and then on the left hand is a either a mixed race woman but it's always a woman that is of black ancestry whether she's fully black or half black or whatever the case might be but is a black woman that he's married to on his left hand and so how that works is you know he has his wife he has his property and he tends to his white wife and if they have children, those children are legally his heirs. So if he dies, those children inherit everything he owns. Whereas in, on his left hand is his black wife and any children born from there, even if the law says your firstborn son is entitled to everything and his firstborn son is technically from his black wife, she really doesn't mean anything. It was a way of justifying and legitimizing the affairs that slave owners would have with their slaves. 
So now you have these mixed race children and, excuse me, but Louisiana was well known for this, right? Because similar to how you were saying the, the pointees, um, you know, we have black and white makes a mulatto, but then after that, you have quadroon, which is saying that you're a quarter black. You have octoroon, which is your one eighth black. And it, it, it goes much, much further. And similar to how you were saying that in the Maasai markets, a lighter skinned woman might, or a lighter skinned person, I should say, might end up having to pay a little bit more for goods in the brothels and uh, that were being run in Louisiana, you could expect to pay more to sleep with a octoroon or a, a quadroon woman versus a regular white woman because that, that touch of black in her ancestry made her somewhat fetishized. And these people were seen as free people of color. They were seen as black people you know, depending on who you were speaking to, they, even though, you know, generations removed, that Black was so far back, you never even knew the Black ancestor, they were still considered Black. Um, a famous case that, that is taught in America is Plessy versus Ferguson, where a, and it's interesting because when I was growing up, it was always, it's a Black man, this Black man tried to ride on a segregated train car, and they kicked him off the train, and he went to court, and it was a whole thing. It wasn't until maybe Earlier this year, I learned that Plessy wasn't just like a black man. He was, if I'm not mistaken, he's either an octoroon or a quadroon. So he was very much removed from the blackness. But even he's, so and when you see photos of him, you see what looks like a white man. But he gets on this train and he's still kicked off and it's a whole thing. So this was a practice that was common in Haiti, in Louisiana, in a lot of the French, Caribbean, French colonized places these left-hand ma marriages were a very common practice thing. Um, yeah, no, I find it very interesting. I think um, one of the main phenomenons that's actually come out of colorism is the idea of fetishization. It's something that's very, very hard for me to grasp. Um, obviously, it does, it does give you in some way um, um, I'd say some some idea, some main idea of uh, divide and conquer, and obviously that light-skinned women are the chosen ones by the white men, and obviously um, you know they. I think this is my my take on it personally. Um, if you start to look deeper into fetishization, like back in the past, I think the reason why I think it was an excuse. Obviously, black women, I'd say in general, right? There's so many women around the world that are beautiful, right? But slave owners were kind of confronted by the fact that you know they're black they can't be beautiful and they decided to legitimize what obviously as you were saying these affairs by making something like left-hand marriage and i think the main reason why there's that element of fetishization for light-skinned women is because you have a touch of i'll say god's hand in sort of quotes because you know white people are always portrayed even like if you want to talk about how god is portrayed or how angels are portrayed in several religions it's as a white person. So if you have that sort of image and like, you know, you get someone that's actually light-skinned out of that, they become someone like that's been saved by this sort of white supremacy and they're being saved from that pool of, uh, the gene pool of, you know, uh, uh, black people. And I find it very interesting how that actually manifests itself today. Like, I think for me, I think I've talked about this in several videos. Some of the most fetishized women on the African continent are Ethiopian women. And not just, by the way, just so people know, 
Ethiopian women are not just light-skinned. There are so many Ethiopian tribes that are fully dark-skinned people. And people don't, like when you think of Ethiopia, the first thing you think of, and I guarantee that when I, when I mention this, my, my listeners are going to think of a light-skinned woman with curly hair and obviously, you know, all of these different things, right? And we can see it creeping into things like, for example, Netflix, all these different things. We were not able to see a main character that was fully black until very recently. We first saw people that were light-skinned. And then now light-skinned people are kind of becoming the beauty standard. But if you notice, like, if you rewind 10 years ago, right, where this wasn't really such a huge thing, I'd say most people were focused on white girls with, you know, straight hair. And they still very much are the, the beauty standard. But what's happening now? We can see that most people are getting, whether it's, um, I'm not trying to shame any of these women, but I feel like, obviously, the beauty standard is starting to shift. People have this idea of African women, and you can look into the old um, encyclopedias, how they define African women, having big bottoms or big breasts and all this different stuff, big lips. And that's a key one I want to focus on. We're seeing more people starting to get lip fillers because they take what they want from our culture. They make it, they fetishize it, and they, they make it the beauty standard, right? But they still wouldn't be willing to give us the rights. That's the crazy part about it. And like, obviously, like last, um, that's, 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 I think, where fetishization comes from. I still need to do a bit more reading and a bit more exploration on why light-skinned women are generally like fetishized or why they are the beauty standard. But I want to talk about one last instance of colorism, and that's within the Arab community and in relation to the slave trade. It's very interesting, actually, how the Arabs actually enslaved so many white people, especially during uh, the Islamic empire's, um, what's it called, the, the Islamic em empire like expansion, right? Uh, when they started to defeat the Byzantine empire and the Sassanid empires as well, you see a lot of different uh, types of people uh, moving, actually I would call it slavery because it's actually defined as indentured servitude, but becoming indentured servants in Islamic society. And when you start to go um, you know, further into history, Obviously, Islam is anti-racism and anti-colorism, but the Arab culture started to influence slavery more and more. And as you can see, they actually used to, most of the slaves that were being taken from, for example, Abyssinia, were actually um, women and they were light-skinned women. That's another thing that could possibly reinforce colorism. And then additionally, if you look at the ranks that were given to certain people when they were indentured servants, because obviously in, in that, uh, the Arab form of slavery, indentured servants could be soldiers, they could be working in the house or they could be working in the field. The same thing as almost similar to like, you know, the, the structure in the US as well. What you could see is that black people were actually given more of the field jobs, but the white slaves or the slabs, right, um, that were actually taken from uh, more of like Europe, those areas were given jobs inside the house and those jobs tended to be lighter in terms of like um physical exertion all these different things so it's even interesting that within a different element of slavery that you had some element of colorism and obviously to wrap up um i just want to thank you so much for your time but do you have anything left to say is there anything else that you wanted to tell us about uh just as we begin to close the podcast um, yeah, so I want to thank you for having me. And so I, I just wanted to touch on what you were saying when you were referring to like the Ethiopian woman thing. And like I was nodding in my head because I was like, yeah, when people say Ethiopian, Eritrean, the first thing that comes to a lot of people's minds are like Habesha woman, 
and you know that in and of itself is problematic but also you were referring to like you know not getting your first like fully black character on tv and that's something that we over here in in the states we see so often you know you have these shows that are about black families right and so like i'll take one of my favorites right which is blackish and blackish is I like to think of it as the, the my generation's Cosby show because they tackle it's a very similar concept to professional black parents with their children doing what it is that they do. And it, it's interesting because it's like the father is a fully black man, though the mother is in real life, the actress who plays her is a biracial woman. So they have her character in the show be a biracial woman. But then like the children, like they have one the eldest daughter is played by a mixed race girl. Um, you have this show on uh, Netflix called Family Reunion, and the two daughters are mixed race girls. And so, like, my whole thing with it was, I was like, okay, cool, because in the first, or I think the first or second episode, they kind of justify why the eldest daughter is so light as she is, because they justify that the mom is mixed race, and so the daughter just looks a lot like the white grandmother. And I'm like, okay, I understand how some families are like that. That's justified. And, and the girl who plays the old eldest daughter is half black and half white. And then I look at the girl who plays the youngest daughter, who is everything but black. And I'm just like, oh, you know, so we, we see that too, where it's like, they'll, they'll do a black family, but the daughter is always this mixed race or lighter skin or, and dramatically lighter skin. And Blackish did an episode where they, they addressed colorism because the youngest daughter is the, like supposedly the darkest part member of the family. And in the class photo, because of how the lighting is set up, she's like a shadow. And there's a whole discussion in the episode about colorism and they accuse the dad of being a colorist and they accuse the mom of not understanding colorism. And so the grandmother has to come be, and, and she, her, in her backstory, she says her mother is from Louisiana, her mother is a Creole, and the Creoles were, were the result of the, the left-hand marriages. They're the descendants of when you have those left-hand marriages. She says, my mother was a Creole, but my father was a very dark-skinned Black man, and that affected her because she came out darker than her mother's side, so she wasn't as accepted. And like, there, you have this saying, it's like, if you're, if you're light, you're all right. If you're brown, stick around. But if you're black, stay in the back. And, and that was something a lot of, you know, during like segregationist times that a lot of older African-Americans had to grow through. So that's, that's my little, little thing that I want to just throw out there that colorism, colorism is definitely, it's nothing new, right? It's definitely not anything new and it's definitely something that every society, every society deals with. And it's, it's something that we have, I feel as though, not that I feel, but we definitely have to educate ourselves on it as we work to eradicate it from, from our society and from our, our, from, our, from our frame of thought primarily, because it's certain things that are so toxic. I have a post on Instagram that says, you know, we as a community, as Black people, need to stop telling our Black children during the summer, you're getting too dark. So I'll, I'll, I'll leave it with that, you know, stop telling Black children they're getting too dark. Yeah, no, indeed. I think there's definitely like several ways in which uh, we see colorism that is still being enforced today. And I think, yeah, one, one last thing I'll possibly say is um, uh, I'm, I'm personally one person, I don't believe in preference because children prefer, let's say, like 
um, a physical color, let's say I prefer the color blue, but it's because you know all the other colors in the spectrum, right? But if you, if you say that I prefer dark-skinned girls, or let's say I prefer light-skinned girls, you're acting as if, or you're making a claim that, oh yeah, I've seen based on a general sample that's large enough for me to generalize a whole group of people and say I prefer this group of people. For me, it just doesn't really add up in terms of looks. And I think it's becoming, preference is actually becoming uh, this sort of guys, you know, um, that's like, you know, I only date this race of people. And you'll start to see it popping up more and more often. And I think for most people, I think you just need to question your biases. In my view, you need to le- unlearn that colorism and find a way for you to actually um, treat people equally. And like, you know, colorism, as I've said, it's been implanted into African societies, Afro-Caribbean societies, Indo-Caribbean societies, the Indian societies as well, uh, you know, East Asian societies, the colorism is also there. Even in Filipino culture, there is some element of colorism. And it is all part of this major scheme to disenfranchise the black race as a whole, to get us fighting against each other so we are weak when they come at us. So without further ado, thank you everyone for tuning in. Thank you so much, Jamil, for your time. Um, and your insights. I'm pretty sure we'll be doing a lot more of these in the future. And without further ado, thank you guys so much. Uh, please also go ahead and subscribe to my TikTok if you haven't already, where we do a lot of this um, and we discuss similar topics. And I guess we'll see you guys in the next episode.